Hi, and welcome to This Week in Sustainability. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. It's been quite a week, so let's get right to it. Well, This Week in Sustainability, I came to the realization of the incontrovertible conclusion that the only way to make the transition from the current form of unsustainable capitalism is to take the threat, the main threat that capitalists hold over the average Joe and Jane's head. But before I get to that, let me say this. Uh, Let's make no mistake about it. The great majority of us wish to have a different and more sustainable life. Now, we don't always put our desires in such terms, uh, sustainability that is. And and in some respects, the term sustainable is a little bit off-putting for a lot of different folks, particularly those of conservative bent of mind. It is, after all, associated with liberal elites. And anyways, many of these folks, these people that don't really like the term sustainable, also don't really like liberals who do uh, believe in sustainability and do understand the nature and potential outcomes of a more sustainable world. Happier, healthier lifestyles uh, for everybody, not just liberals. And I think that's something that we, we all want. So let's frame this in terms of lifestyles, in terms of how people live their lives. That said, I think that the coronavirus shutdown has helped us to understand a little bit more about our own lifestyles. And I think it's helping us to see that uh, perhaps we could live a little bit differently. It's because spending time with our kids, spending time with our hobbies, understanding how crazy our current lifestyles are, how compartmentalized maybe even that they are, understanding how little we actually need to be happy. Now, I'm not saying being stuck in a small apartment or a small house or even a big house for that matter is ideal for anybody. No, not at all. Not at all. It's not a great thing. But I tell you one thing, it's given us a better appreciation for uh, being outside, being in nature and understanding nature. And I think as well, as I mentioned, a different way to live. What we are most afraid of is not being able to live the lives we want now and a lifestyle that we have a glimmer of now thanks to coronavirus. But how do you get to that lifestyle? I mean, where do you get the time and the money to do the things you want, but uh, you're in constant fear or you don't do it uh, for lack of income? Now, my big fear, and I suspect it's true for a lot of people, is that come the end of coronavirus, whatever that looks like, we'll just go back to what we were doing December 31st to 19. And if you look at the pollution rates in major Chinese cities, you can see that we're hitting peak emissions once more. They're getting increasingly dirty and carbon parts per million, it's going to it's going to rise with the disaster results results of all that. And we're going to continue to ex- extinguish two to three species a day and habitats and ecosystems, all the things that we desperately need, desperately need for our own health and happiness and that of nature and the environment generally. Death, destruction, and mayhem is not a probable outcome of going back to our old habits and lifestyles. It's the only probable outcome that we can look forward to. I don't like to be negative, but certainly that is the case. 
So when I read an article in Business Green on the French government potentially linking Air France's bailout to making the company far more environmentally friendly, something about cutting emissions in half within the decade, et cetera, et cetera, I was not surprised to see that the executives and supporters of the company, of Air France, countered with the, oh gosh, these are complex conditions making us green. Well, nobody said they're not, but they are vital conditions. More ominously, though, the executive said, we can lose jobs. Well, isn't that the ultimate threat that capitalists hold over the average Jane and Joe's head? They've taught us to consume like crazy so that we're so afraid of losing our jobs so that we can't consume like crazy. We actually understand the evidence of our overconsumption, yet we willingly, lemmingly go there and we are active co-conspirators in our own destruction. Imagine that. Well, last week I wrote a short article called The Big Fix and the Probability of a Green Recovery, where I argued it was likely too much to expect folks to survive the corona crisis and come out swinging for a green recovery. Well, most folks, some folks will be able to do that. You can find the article at thesustainablecentury.net. There's and there's been talk about this, you know, green recovery, primarily in Europe. Still not a lot of hard or big actions. France uh, is an exception, perhaps. Ben Lallman uh, did a great graphic on the topic, uh, and you can get that uh, in my article uh, at the sustainablecentury.net. Yeah, it's coming up this afternoon. Showing that of the trillions provided by government in financing to combat coronavirus, France alone tied more than 50% to a green recovery. Spain and the UK also tied some significant amounts and this is heartening this is a good thing but the total amounts dedicated to a green recovery are just a trifle compared to uh, the overall covid bailout packages around the world some may point out that a lot of money targets folks staying at home increased uh, you know so, sort of protect their jobs uh, increased uh, unemployment benefits and, and the like and these are all a very good thing if in, in fact i was just reading this morning that in europe Unemployment has barely increased at all. Well, in the United States, it's closing in on 20%. Talk about a backwards way of protecting your economy. Uh, you can check out again uh, The Big Fix, which I wrote last week at the sustainablecentury.net, talking about how the U.S. is going about their bailout compared to Europe. Anyways, uh, the point I'm trying to make about this fear thing, about this axe of capitalists over our head. The only way to take out that threat is to ensure people have enough income to live on with dignity. And I think that if we link that, uh, some kind of guaranteed income, and there's talk of that in Spain now and a little bit in Canada, if we link that, some, some form of guaranteed income to solutions to get us out of the coronavirus crisis and as a way to support solutions for resolving climate change and biodiversity loss, and, and matching it with, uh, I like to be with my kids more. I like to do my hobbies more. I like to do all these things that make me an actual human and not just a work bot. Well, we might actually stand a chance of making the transition from a carbon to a non-carbon based economy. Sustainable economy where we're happier, we're healthier. Well, sure, the new world won't be as material. This new world wouldn't be as materially abundant, but I can if I can use that word, but imagine a world where you don't need to feel stressed about how you are going to make the rent, pay for all your kids' activities, pay the mortgage, and you have a little time to dig in the garden, walk in the park, listen to music, read that book, watch that movie, 
hang out and not feel stressed entirely about money. And I don't care what, what side of the political spectrum you're on, you know. A lot of conservatives are not particularly well off. We know the statistics. Their states are home to some deep, bad welfare stats in terms of health care and health, in terms of life expectancy, poverty levels, violence, crime, death per thousand, births, access to education, and a litany of other really important variables of well-being. I mean, they're not well. And one of the big stumbling blocks, as far as I understand it, at least as it relates to anti-lockdown protests, I guess, which are symbolic of, you know, resistance to, say, a guaranteed income. Oh, you got to earn, you got to do it yourself. You know, well, that, a lot of conservative folk feel that telling them to do anything impinges on their freedom. Well, I saw an interesting video the other day featuring actor... Jeff Daniels. He was participating in a dramatized uh, town hall where participants were asking or answering rather the question why America is the greatest country in the world. That's a fairly common and I would say cliche question. Uh, One of the prevailing themes was "Ah, because of its freedom. It's a free country. When Daniels, who was playing a panelist uh, in the town hall, when he was asked why he thought America was the greatest country in the world, he hesitated for quite some time before answering. He was at pains to answer. And then finally he said, America is not the greatest country in the world. And it's not the only free country in the world. So it's not the only country with the same levels or greater levels of freedom. Japan is free. Canada is free. Britain is free. Belgium is free. Holland is free. Germany is free. Australia. Most countries in the world have some or the same, have the same or higher degrees of freedom than the United States. The country is not exceptional in this respect. It may have been a leader at one point, but it is certainly not now. So perhaps what we need to do is refine or redefine what freedom means. I don't know if freedom means being able to pack a semi-automatic weapon into the Michigan State Capitol House to force the governor to go against all health expert opinion to open up the economy. That doesn't mean freedom to me. That is actually the opposite of being free. But anyways, I digress. I suggest that freedom, at least in the future by design or disaster, will be defined by the ability of being who you want to be within the terms of nature's resource limits. I'm both naive enough to believe this is possible, but not naive enough to understand that it requires a massive cultural shift that, well, might not just be possible. And the only way I can see this happening is if we address this scarcity reflex that drives us to accumulate, that drives us to think more stuff is more valuable than time with the family or time in nature or, or the kinds of things that we actually are finding are pretty damn important during this lockdown. Well, this leads me to believe that a guaranteed income is the only way to relieve the pressure of our scarcity reflex and to allow public support for our reintegration into nature, with nature. I have never been a fan of not working for my money, for not working for the things I get. But you know what? The more I think about it, the more my wife, my partner in life, Antonia, Tonya, is correct. We need to guarantee the income of folks, not so they can lie around and be lazy, but so they can have the freedom 
to not accumulate, the freedom to have a roof over their heads, food on their table, school for their kids, health care in case they need it, and time. And time. More than anything else, time not to accumulate, time to do, time to be. There will be many, many, many job opportunities in the new economy for people who, in the green economy, for people who want to work hard. But in the transition, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and are going to lose the potential for a livelihood. Folks, even like myself, will not be as employable as we once were. If Lieutenant Governor Rambo Dan of Texas is willing to expose himself to the coronavirus to save the economy for future generations, he and all other folks should be willing to give up their job for climate change and biodiversity loss and equality and and we should be able to have some reasonable living at the same time. So take us out of the game with a guaranteed income. But we know the curve for uh, climate change and biodiversity loss is going to be much, much steeper than that of coronavirus. It's going to have greater impacts and it's going to have many, many, many more implications and impacts on future generations than COVID-19. Well, if he's willing to do that, well, he should be willing to do it for climate and biodiversity loss, which is a noble, noble cause. Uh, far nobler, really, than saving, what, capitalism for capitalists? Uh, many of us, as older folks, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm closing on the big 6-0, guys. Uh, many of us uh, need to sit this one out. In fact, uh, having caused a lot of the problems, the decisions that we make now uh, have such grave implications for future generations that perhaps we shouldn't be making the choices. And by the way, our definition of wealth as a result should change. And, and it can change. It, it will change. It's going to change. My kids want mini houses. When I grew up, I wanted a big house. My kids, they grew up on coconut milk. They don't care about cow's milk so much. It's just not their normal. And they don't question it. They, they say, well, what about this cow's milk stuff? Although they do debate the sustainability value of different brands of coconut. Now, how can that make you not be a proud papa? So, if they learn nature is more important than all the other expensive crap they can accumulate, they don't, and they don't actually need, it leads to a cultural change that integrates us humans, homo sapiens, back into nature, which is really the minimum that we can do at this point to save the planet from ourselves. Nature or being in nature would become the new normal. Anyways, check out an article I'm writing next week for the Sustainable Century, which looks at our culture war against nature, where I write, the current pandemic crisis is a horrible tragedy, yet it provides a once-in-a-species-life-span opportunity for course correction about living within the dictates of nature and to stop our useless, unwinnable war against it. Homo sapiens have enormous physical, metaphysical, and spiritual challenges ahead. The only outcome that counts, however, will be a redefinition of what constitutes an acceptable lifestyle, one that satisfies our moral code and works within the dictates of nature. Simply put, this is the crucible of whatever time we, Homo sapiens, have left on this planet. And the biggest single challenge, to choose peace with nature and amongst our riven selves, ensuring all life is precious all of the time, not just human life, and not just in moments of crisis. Everything else is just nibbling at the edge of a disaster. 
check that out uh, in the sustainablecentury.net next week. Um, in the meantime, I'm offering up one, an article I wrote several years ago, in fact, but updated for this time of coronavirus. Um, and it talks about how, well, it's where I argue America is literally coming apart at the seams because they cannot come to agreement on a shared set of moral principles from which to address the existential threats of coronavirus and climate change. So I'm going to, uh, you know, read the article now. But if you prefer, you can go to the sustainablecentury.net and read it for yourself. Appreciate it. If you like the article, uh, you can pass the pod or pass the article along. Coronavirus and the U.S. coming apart at the seams. For years, foreigners like myself have wondered what's going on in America recognized all too often and sometimes unfairly for its silly shrill political contests this recent round of divisional crazy pitting red state versus blue state governments against one another in a covid civil war seems one step too far even for america is the current coronavirus pandemic the last straw in america coming apart at the seams reaction it has provoked in both red and blue states of mind alike have certainly applied enormous stress on growing ruptures in American solidarity that existed long before the virus arrived. America's class and race fault lines have been around since its founding, yet we stubbornly believe in superficial fixes, say the reviving of a blue-collar economy well, that's been displaced by the economic forces through new manufacturing, more food stamps, health care for all, smaller government, there are many policy prescriptions that could be right, but the populist Trumpian Sandernista backlash to America's faltering white picket world is symptomatic of a deeper uh, upheaval. What America is experiencing is a profound, cathartic questioning rejection of its governing social contract. Uh, social contracts, of course, are in constant evolution. This is not news. But while change is the norm, what America is experiencing now is uh, far from a game of inches. Rather, it is an acidic review of its contract, one so radical it begs the question, why now? The answer is a complicated story and may have to do with an American myth, diversity, and the Internet. Like Europe before it, America has simply run out of space. Its frontiers are gone. Pressed together, cheek by jowl, Americans have nowhere to go to purify their sins, start fresh, live their values, and most notably, leave disagreeable neighbors behind. Even as F.J. Turner elaborated the frontier theory in 1893, Americans knew, as they do today, the frontier is not a place. It's a state of mind. It is the American id which still drives hopes and dreams over the Ohio, the mighty Mississippi, the Rockies, and on down to the Pacific Coast. America has historically found unity in frontiers, facing down communism, advancing democracy, outer space, in business, unadorned and inconvenient social conventions, filled with independent thought and unquestionable truths. Belief in an endless frontier has, in many ways, sustained and powered the American dream. 
at the limits of its geography, America now seems constantly irritated with itself like a bunch of 20-something-year-olds eight months into sharing their first apartment. Confident and afraid, bumbling and brilliant, unimaginably wealthy yet inexcusably poor, roommates constantly arguing about who cleans up what, when, and how. And when they open the fridge, it's not just ketchup and mustard anymore but a confounding landscape of salsa, gram, masala, tahini, and soya sauce, etc., etc. Few Americans are racist, I believe that, but many are befuddled and scared by the change that has them in a supermarket filled with people they don't understand and products they don't know. Well, this brings us to the next great American frontier, the Internet. Which, unlike real-time America, is far less confusing. The net, just like Turner's mythical frontier, is more egalitarian than elitist and more decentralized than hierarchical. A place where one does not need to negotiate and where filters of civility need not apply. It is a perfect frontier because it is truly infinite. So if you don't like what you see, you load up your virtual wagon and you move on. The internet has brought much good to America, but its influence on public debate, well, that's been more mixed. Yes, it has increased awareness and discussion on pressing issues. But internet communities of thought all too often celebrate singular views and discontents, breeding uncontested beliefs and self-congratulatory satisfaction in them. Intellectually comfortable, influential blogs, websites, and discussion groups are quite often places of exclusion, where polarizing debate and blind allegiance are rewarded first. Dissent is immediately, often savagely, punished. An unwillingness to compromise fuels a take-no-prisoner approach to discourse, where social coercion, not consensus, is both the means and increasingly an end in it of itself. As we are seeing with Mr. Trump, truth nor details need not apply. As superficial, incoherent, and inarticulate as deliberation on the internet and public debate can seem, in the broadest sense, it's not. Rather, it's educationally symptomatic of a breathtakingly inclusive and chaotic debate on the legitimacy of America's social contract. Feel free uh, to fill in any of the innumerable, incoherent, and inconsistent examples from GOP constituents accepting scathing attacks on decorated service people to Democrat indignation about what are surely routine, uh, i.e. not related to the Ukraine, quid pro quos in government. Neither side is afraid or refrains from spouting opinions free of fact, well, nor should they. This is a sacred part of the First Amendment deal made long ago. The danger is that much less of the opinion offered is as well thought out as the stakes demand, even, and some would say, particularly from leadership. Yet it is entirely instructive, for beyond the surliness, shrillness, and stupidity, one can certainly see the near irreparable fault lines. Uh, something I always like to say is democracy was never meant to be uniformly eloquent, but it is supposed to float the best ideas and people to the top one could reasonably question if that is happening today. At the heart of it all, Americans seem increasingly unable to agree with each other on the rights they are willing to give up for the freedoms they want in return. Without broad agreement on rights and freedoms, Americans struggle to believe justice is being served on any given issue. 
And without such agreement, or at least the perception of it, civic cohesion itself is threatened, and we see that daily. Thus, and for example, discrimination can be claimed as another term for religious freedom. Extreme political correctness on university campuses, legislation sanctioning religious and sexual identity intolerance, killings motivated by race, religion, and lifestyle are far too often the terrible outcomes. Now, ironically, it was the confusing and himself quite divisive Ben Carson, remember him, Secretary of HUD, who once nailed it when he observed, never before have we been so closely connected to each other, but more divided as a country. This is exactly the conundrum pulling at America's unhemmed teenage pants. For social contracts to work, the great majority of people must be willing to extend privileges to everyone, even those they find utterly disagreeable. This is daily less the case as America engages in an existential war of words over defining what ought to be or not to be in the 21st century. Without frontiers to absorb the more virulent differences of opinion, and with the internet exacerbating and hardening positions, public debate is leading nowhere good and fast. America is no longer a melting pot. It is a multicultural society lurching towards an uncertain future, just as it is slipping off its foundations. This must be extremely uncomfortable for a nation with great confidence in absolutes and its own exceptionalism particularly as its leading political ideologies have proven entirely unable to cope with ongoing change, let alone terrible crises like coronavirus and climate change. One must reasonably question if America can continue to function as a two-party state and forge a new broadly satisfying social contract. Should America be just one country? Can it be? Regional state pacts on both coasts have formed to confront the coronavirus, suggest both literally and figuratively that perhaps not. A different national leader, say Joe Biden, might have been able to forge a countrywide strategy for defending against the virus and within it give hope for forming a new, more cohesive social contract. Given the deep state of red-blue confirmation bias, even having to ask the question says about as much that needs to be said about the prospects for the State of the Union. Within the current context of global and national crisis, it is shocking just how divided the country remains. The American experiment, while alive and kicking, is certainly closer to being on its knees than ever before. The pandemic offers America a unique opportunity to rework its social contract and to include a bigger, more sustainable umbrella of unity. If it can, the country will certainly be great again, but not in the way most think it was, and certainly not in the way that the likes of Mr. Trump imagine it should be. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields. I'm a host of This Week in Sustainability. I'm glad you stopped by for a listen. If you like what you heard, press like in all the right spots or pass the pod along. We really would appreciate it. You want to know more uh, about all things sustainable? You can find pods and videos and articles at thesustainablecentury.net. Thanks again for listening. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier, more sustainable world. 